Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett on the Thursday broadcast. So glad that you're joining us today. Now, listen, we're talking about how to have joy that can overcome opposition. Now, listen, opposition is going to come your way. You can't do anything about it. It's going to come. And so I want to do something a little different. I want to look at a larger portion of Scripture from Acts chapter 17. And Paul is going into Thessalonica, and uh, he's on a very important mission. He's spreading the gospel, building churches, starting churches, and he runs into some opposition, okay? And so I want to just read the text, and then today and tomorrow, we're going to talk about how to have joy in the midst of opposition and how joy can actually overcome the opposition that you are facing. So Acts chapter 17, we're going to walk through it together. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And as they came into Thessalonica, there was a Jewish synagogue there. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And so the synagogue was kind of like a central location where they would gather together. And he would explain to them uh, and he talked to them about the Messiah Uh, that the Messiah came, that he suffered, and that he rose from the dead. Remember, this is after the death, after the burial, after the resurrection of Christ. We're deep in the book of Acts here. The church is going out, spreading the gospel. And Paul says that this Jesus that I'm proclaiming, uh, so now we're down in verse number four, he is proclaiming he is the Messiah. Now, some of the Jews were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So we discover here that he had quite the gathering in a very short amount of time. We're talking three weeks. Uh, He's reasoning with them every Sabbath from the scriptures, and he's starting to get a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Those were Greeks who were unregenerate, but now they've heard the message of the gospel. And he says there's also quite a few prominent women. Now that's an important statement, right? Because in the times of the early church, women were not to have a prominent position within the church. And so many people wrongly think uh, that Christianity holds back women, but it really does just the opposite. It lifts them up. And that's why Paul says, and and even Peter agrees that there's no difference between male and female or Jew and, and Greek. We're all one in Christ. And so now we're in verse number five. We discover that although good things are happening, the Jews were jealous. So what did they do? They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. Uh, They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. Uh, So they knew who to call, who to connect with. They're called bad characters from the marketplace. These are people that were easily influenced, that were easily involved in inciting riots, okay? I guess we could call them professional rioters. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas, and ordered them to bring them out to the crowd. And so now they're trying to make a a spectacle of what's happening. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble over the whole world have come here. And Jason has walked them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that this is another king, that there's another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made Jason and the others post bond, and then they let him go. So here we discover that Paul and Silas were residing there with Jason. Then Jason's house was right next to the synagogue. They would go out every Saturday to the synagogue, and it was more of a debate that they would have, more of an exchange of ideas, and they're proclaiming the Messiah. Lots of people are getting saved. 
Jews and Greeks and lots of women getting saved. But then the Jews are becoming jealous because here this is happening right outside their synagogue. And this can't happen in the synagogue. This is a Jewish place of worship. And so they find people that were wanting to go against uh, what the message was, and they bring before Jason to court. They couldn't find Paul and Silas. They had already left. So they basically tried to intimidate Jason, uh, slapped him on the hand, says, okay, I tell you, you post your bond. And then you can go home, okay? So he posted his bond, and he went home. Now we pick up the story in verse number 10, Acts 17. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. That was their custom. Now the Berean Jews were more noble than those of Thessalonica because they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And I love how that is explained to us, that the Bereans were noble and more noble because they checked out the Scriptures. First of all, they had an eagerness to receive the message. And I want you to encourage you, when you go to church on Sunday, go with an eagerness, right? Go with that anticipation that I'm going to hear from God today. And then when your pastor gets up and gives the message, follow up with what he says and examine it with the Scriptures. That will show that you have a noble character. You're not just taking it by blind faith. You are actually searching to make sure that your pastor's on the right track. And you do this, obviously, respectfully, because sometimes even God-fearing and Bible-believing pastors, sometimes they don't get it 100% right. Uh, no pastor is infallible. That's why it's good to have a congregation that loves their pastor and is willing to, with great eagerness, hear the message and examine that message to make sure that it lines up with Scripture. And then we get to verse number 12, and it says, As a result, there in Berea, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Uh, so here that, that phrase is again. Prominent Greek women and many Greek men are becoming converted. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching, and that the word of God was going forth in Berea, some of them went there too. And they went with the purpose of agitating the crowds and stirring them up. And then they weren't going out of curiosity. They weren't going because they were interested in being converted. They were going with a mission in mind. They were going to agitate the crowds and stir everybody up. Now the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join them as soon as possible. So we discover so far in uh, these first 15 verses of Acts chapter 17 that Paul and his companions are passing through and they've been to Berea and now they're going on and passing into Athens. And so we see now what Paul was watching for them in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul's coming into Athens, and he discovers that there's idols everywhere in this city. And so he does what he customarily does. He goes to the synagogue, and, and he reasons with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as anybody he could find in the marketplace day by day, uh, and those that happen to be there. Now, there was in that particular group a group of Epicureans, and Stoic philosophers. 
Well, they began to debate with Paul, and some of them asked, who is this babbler, and what is he trying to say? Others remarked that he seemed to be advocating for foreign gods. Uh, They said this because when Paul was preaching, and he's giving them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, uh, they are taking him out to a place, and and he's saying that he's giving them his teaching, and, and his new teaching that he was presenting was foreign to them, and so they're thinking that the gospel is another God. Uh, verse number 20 says that you're bringing some strange ideas to our, our ears. They were somewhat curious about it. They said, well, we'd like to know more about what you mean. Verse 21 says that all the Athenians and all of the foreigners who live there, they spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So these people are not necessarily under conviction. They're just curious, right? Uh, They wanted to know the latest philosophy, the latest ideas. And so they're thinking, well, this guy, Paul, is bringing a new philosophy. Let's hear him out. Verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, I guess we could say the same thing about our society. We don't live in a non-religious society. We live in a very religious society. The issue is not our people worshiping. The question is, what are they worshiping? We're all worshiping something. And so Paul says, I can see you are a very religious group of people. He says, well, you know, I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship. Uh, you know, I went to your temples and I saw your altars. And he says, I even found that you had an altar with an inscription. And the inscription said this, to an unknown God. Uh, So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Uh, So Paul says, listen, I want you to know something. You have an idol that is designated to an unknown God. You don't even know who he is. That's why you've called him an unknown God. You're ignorant as to what you are worshiping. You know you want to worship something, uh, and you've got all these other idols, and you figure, just in case we've missed one, we're going to erect an idol to an unknown God. And we're going to hope that one day we can figure out who this unknown God is. And so Paul says, that is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and of earth. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So Paul says, I want to talk to you about this God. You know, you got these idols and, and you're serving them. You're serving their needs. And, and I want to tell you about a God who has no needs. I want to talk to you about the God who gives everyone life. The God has given you breath and everything else that you have. That's the God that I want to talk to you. Verse 26, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. Now, what's Paul doing here? Paul's saying this God that I'm telling you about is the God that created the whole earth. He marked out the times and history. He marked out the boundaries of the land, talking about the sea and the land. Verse 27, he says that God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. 
though he's not far from any of us. That's talking about God is present everywhere. And see, Paul is saying God created his creation so that you would realize there is a creator. And that from this creation, that you would not just look at this creation and be tempted to worship this creation, but you would worship the one who created creation. For in him, we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like a God who is made of silver or of stone, an image made by human design or skill. And then Paul says, you know, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Prior to the coming of Christ, God was patient because Christ had not come. They looked forward to his coming and they believed in his coming, but he was much more patient with their unbelief because Christ had not come to pay as a substitute to pay for the penalty of sins. So God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul now is driving home the gospel. He says, God used to be very patient, and he didn't expect you to have a full understanding of what repentance was all about because Christ had not come. But God had sent forth a day when justice was going to be meted out on his son, and he gave proof to that because his son not only died for the sins of all the world, but he rose again from the dead. We're now down to verse number 32. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And others said, you know, uh, we want to hear more about this subject. On that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers and believed. Among them was Dionysus, who was a member of the Aragapis. And there was also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Now, in Acts chapter 17, there's a lot of exciting things happening. There's also some conflict that is caused as the gospel is being proclaimed. Now, how in the world could good news also be bad news? You see, I think it all revolves around who is in control of my life. When the gospel is received, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus is acknowledged as Lord of your life, the one who's in control of your life. For the person who receives God's forgiveness, a tremendous burden is lifted, and Jesus becomes Lord. On the other hand, the person who does not accept this forgiveness, a burden just got made heavier. In Acts chapter 17, verses 6 through 8, we learn that those who did accept the message of the gospel, they turned the world upside down. But those who did not accept the gospel, they were bitter. And it says that they were acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They were going and saying, there's another king, King Jesus. And so they became embittered by the message of the gospel. You see, the power of forgiveness provided by the gospel is freeing. It's world-changing. One of the hardest experiences to navigate is the giving and the receiving of forgiveness. I mean, it is so hard because it deals with the idol of control. Because forgiveness is a gift, 
I release control when I receive it. And I release control when I give it. I no longer control somebody by saying you owe me when I forgive them. You see, there's a link between giving and receiving forgiveness. Jesus put it this way in his model prayer. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. Now, John Piper said of this passage, If the forgiveness that we received at the cost of the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is so ineffective in our hearts that we are bent on holding unforgiving grudges and bitterness against someone else, then we are not a good tree. We are not saved. We don't cherish this forgiveness. We don't trust this forgiveness. We are just hypocrites. In Acts chapter 17, verse 16, Paul says that the Spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So he goes to the synagogue and, and he has this famous sermon that he preaches. It's called his Mars Hill Sermon. And as he's delivering this sermon, he says, Now, men of Athens, I perceive that you're very religious. Perhaps I was passing through here and, and I was considering all these objects of your worship. I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing it is the one that I want to proclaim to you. And then Paul spends the rest of that sermon, the rest of that chapter, Acts 17, describing Jesus. And things were okay until he proclaimed Jesus was one day going to judge the world and that Jesus rose again from the dead. And now James talks about this judgment. In James 2.13, he says, Judgment by God is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.13, in other words, is saying, just as we don't receive forgiveness if we don't forgive, we don't receive mercy if we're unmerciful. Acts 17 concludes with three responses to Paul's sermon. Some mocked and later persecuted the messengers. Some said, you know what? I want to hear you later on this matter. But then some joined in and believed. Well, I pray today that you will enjoy the freedom that is found in Christ. I'm praying that this week that you will become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you will be different because of the gospel. I want to share the main idea of this chapter is that God is going to use the Thessalonians to turn the world upside down. Uh, this whole chapter, Acts chapter 17, is recording the second missionary journey that Paul had. And Paul is going to the Thessalonian believers, a church that he established, and now they're being sent out to spread the gospel wherever they go. Now, this is the same church where later Paul had two personal letters that were written to them, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And oh, maybe as, as you are listening to this message today, maybe you're kind of sad, but I, I want you to know that God's message of the gospel brings joy brings joy to our lives. Oh, we may face some persecution because of it, but I want you to know that from this message, we can receive joy over the opposition. We can win over the opposition. As I think about a very meaningful prayer of happiness, the Jewish prayer for happiness demands that our attention is to, uh, to put our focus on the choice that we have, choosing joy. 
And this prayer of the Jews that they would pray is a prayer that is, is really summarized by Ten Commandments that is given by one of the rabbis. And you will find joy, according to this Jewish prayer of happiness, if you honor those who have given life. And you're going to recognize a very unique correlation between these Ten Commandments given by Rabbi Evan Moffick and the Ten Commandments. He says, if you really want to be filled with joy, honor those who gave you life. That sounds like honor your father and your mother. Secondly, keep on learning. If you want to have joy, never get to the point where you think, I have arrived. Thirdly, if you want to have joy, be there when others need you. You know, there's nothing like being there with somebody who is in in a time of need. You want to find joy, be with somebody who needs you. Not that you're trying to create this codependent relationship. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that when we go and we're supporting somebody in their time of need, not only does that that person get joy and get lifted up, but we get joy as we minister to them. If you want to have joy, support yourself and others during times of loss. If you want to have joy, be quick to forgive. There's so much joy in forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of those strange things where you feel like if I forgive somebody, I'm going to lose my joy. But when you forgive somebody, you actually are are overflowing with joy because you have released that person. And you've discovered that the person that was most released is me. I'm no longer carrying that resentment. I'm no longer carrying that bitterness. I'm no longer carrying that desire to, to have revenge. Rabbi Evan Moffick says, if you want to be joyful, be kind. Old-fashioned kindness. We are told to be kind to one another, to, to build one another up. If you want to have joy, invite others into your life. Can I give an honest uh, confession? Uh, there are times in my life where I just would, I just want to be left alone. And I know sometimes we need to be left alone, but it's so easy for that to be the pattern of your life. Just this morning, as I was going out for my morning walk, I saw my neighbor, and I and I was, oh no, my neighbor, and uh, and I and I, not that I don't love my neighbor, don't take this in the wrong way, but but I, I'm I'm a focused type of person. I'm like, I've got to get through my walk, right? And I don't have a whole lot of time, and I got to get through my walk. And and I, although I love my neighbor, uh, if I get talking to my neighbor, I won't get my steps in. Well, the neat thing about it is this guy's a new guy that I just met in the neighborhood, and, and he says, hey, uh, I know you're busy. Let me walk with you. I said, this is great. I can kill two birds with one stone. I can spend some time with my neighbor, and I get my steps in, And uh, but I, I've got a bit. That wasn't my initial response. So invite others into your life. Oh, I know people can be prickly, and people can be, they can be uh, really trivial, and uh, they can be sometimes uh, a pain but we need one another. Invite others into your life. And then if you want to have joy, celebrate the good times, right? Uh, Don't gloss over the good times. Celebrate the good times. We're getting ready to have a big celebration out of the church. Uh, We're getting ready to celebrate 25 years uh, as a church. And and I remember when we were first talking about this, hey guys, let's not even worry about it. Let's just go on and uh, let's not make a big celebration of this. No, no, we got to celebrate. This is a big thing. We've made it 25 years. We must celebrate. So celebrate the good times. That creates a memorial for you when you're going through hard times. And, and sometimes I look at life and I say, man, I'm going through a hard time. But I remember, hey, for 25 years, God has sustained us in our church. I reckon he has sustained us for another 25 years. And then if you want to have joy, 
Pray with intention. Don't have these half-hearted, now I lay me down to sleep prayers. I know those are beginning points to have, uh, but pray with intention. And then lastly, if you want to have joy, look inside and commit. Change what needs to be changed. Look inside. Say, Lord, look into me. Reveal the secret parts of me that need to be changed. Don't just get to the point where you constantly excuse those areas of your life. Actually spend some time in confession, changing those areas that you know need to be changed. Well, I want to encourage you to join me tomorrow. We're going to be talking about winning over opposition. Now, today's message was very foundational in helping you to know what we're going to cover tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're not going to go through read Acts 17 again, and we're going to pick it right up with how to overcome and have joy in the midst of opposition. So join me tomorrow. I look forward to speaking with you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Now, if I can help you with anything, would you shoot me a text, 252-267-2365, 252-267-2365, and texting is the best way to get a hold of me. And I promise you, I'll get back to you real quick, okay? Well, God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to tomorrow. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ there is always hope for your heart.